Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Suzanne Allen, cultural thinker and curator of Can We Talk About Power, which is a series of online events delving into the nature of power, with a surprising group of artists, poets, writers, and scientists. In this special episode, I will be speaking to two amazing people I am super excited to introduce. Mia Bays is an Oscar-winning film producer and cultural activist. She's about to become the next director of the British Film Institute's Film Fund. Michael Holding, is a cricket commentator. And before moving into the commentary box was one of the greatest, sorry, no, the greatest fast bowler in the history of the game. Welcome to both of you. Thank you very much, Susan. Glad to be with you. It's lovely to be here. So let me just ask, where are we all? Let me set the scene. I am in sunny Pimlico in London, uh, looking at a slightly gray day. Me, where are you? I am not far from you, Suzanne. I am just over the water in Vauxhall, um, across the bridge, and in my studio. And Mikey, where are you? Down the road, no doubt. I am in Grand Cayman, Suzanne. What? (laughs) Not quite down the road. I'm in Grand Cayman. I was in Newmarket yesterday. I just travelled to Grand Cayman yesterday. I spent my first night back at home last night. Wow, that must be amazing. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So let me tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to kick off and I'm going to tell you a little bit about the project, about can we talk about power? And then we're going to see what I've missed out by talking to uh, Mia and to Mikey. And then we're going to we're going to jump right in and I'm going to talk to both of them. And then we're going to see how we go. So as we said, I'm Suzanne. I'm a cultural thinker. It's a term that I made up because there was nothing to explain what I did. And it kind of covers me doing a bit of strategy, research, and this conversational talking. How did I get into power? Well, the truth of the matter is I was having a really hard time at work and I just felt like I had no power and a whole heap of things came in my head. And I started to wonder if I don't have it, where is it? And once I got there, I started to think about well, is it in my body? Is it an emotion? How do I get it? When did I have it? Oh, hell, being black and a female with mental health and dyslexia and feeling overweight and having a traumatized childhood, what does this mean about power? And before you knew it, the research was born. So that's what neurology of power is. It's this 
piece of research that I do partly in academia, partly with business, to ask what power is and where it resides. And I most definitely see it through the lens of being a black British woman. Um, and Mikey, I've got some questions for you when you said in some interviews before about how you could put aside things because you knew this wasn't your home. So for me, this is my home. Like, how do I do that? I have a company which I founded for one sole purpose, and that is to support the creation of equitable spaces. I just want everybody to be able to get on and live life. And I think that power underpins that. So that's that's how we got here. How did we get to Can We Talk About Power? I was lucky enough two and a half years ago to meet the phenomenal then artistic director, Louise Jeffries. And she, she introduced me to um, what became the Three Musketeers. So that was me, Sid, our producer, and Razia. Razia then left us. And so we've now got the amazing Liz. And Can We Talk About Power is five online conversations live. Um, and it's really covering the broad spectrum of, of, of power. So everything from how does our brain work to how does power and well-being impact to even we live, or I live at least, in a kind of a, a Western understanding of power. And it asks the questions, what would happen if you looked at different views of power? So that's enough. That gives you enough, but maybe it doesn't. Mikey, I feel like you might know least about this project. What have I missed out? What would you like to ask me about the project? What I would like to ask you about this project is if you discover exactly what power is, because power, I think, is different things to different people. But if you would discover exactly what power means to you, how then, then do you impart this on other people so that they can find their power and they can find their way of using what they consider to be their power? So you know what? Um, I mean, you just jumped right in there. I've been doing this for a couple of years and no neuroscientist really knows about power, to be honest. But what they do understand is some relations. So they understand that power is related to empathy, right? So not all the time, but often more power, less empathy. My job isn't really to get people to do something different. I see my job here as getting people to just understand that power shapes your life 24 hours a day. And then I wanna give people some examples of how that shapes your life and what we know, because then people can make their own decisions. Um, when, I, when I was diagnosed as dyslexic, getting that diagnosis allowed me to kind of unpick and see certain other things that was happening and understand why. It's the same as power for me, I just want people to stop and realize what a big part power plays in their life. There's a whole other question about creating desire for those people that might maybe need to share or think about sharing their power. So yeah, that's, that, that's, that's, a, that's a great start. Anything else that you think, you know, would be good for everyone to know about before we jump in even more? No, not really. I, you see, I, as I said, I think power means different things to different people. And, you know, once you discover whatever power you have got, because power is, is a word that I think enables people to then move forward. But as I said, sometimes people get power and the empathy disappears because they, they abuse that power. But, you know, I just want people to be able to recognize whatever power they have got 
which can propel them forward and help to propel them in a nice way forward. Mikey, it just makes me think about a quote I found from Alice Walker. And she said, the most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. And we all have power in some way, right? For sure. It's up to us to find it. And once you find that power, then how you use it. I think that's the important thing. So, Amir, are there any, is there anything that you feel I've missed out of the description of what we're doing before we can kind of jump in a bit more? Anything you want to ask me? Yeah, I was really fascinated by the, like you've, the breadth of the, of the curation and the range of perspectives that you've gathered. So I wanted you to talk a bit more about um, why, how you've curated all of those different perspectives and sort of why, what the inspiration was. So in, in truth, um, it, it, it's very definitely co-curation and it's co-curation between me and Barbican and Banff. The why I can go into, um, we've had two and a half years of talking and I think that's part of why for me this is rich. And one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to share some of that journey with those people that are joining us for the first time via this or the playlist or at the live events. And so the first talk with Roger Robinson does that. So I know that I don't look young enough, but I've known Roger for 30 years. And so we've been on this. He introduced me to the arts and he's been along the whole journey of me discovering power. And so part of that was about thinking about how to curate something so that the audience get to see some of the thinking and the why. And his writing is all about empathy. He says, when he won the T.S. Eliot, he says, I want the audience to practice and understand empathy. Um, so that made him a natural kind of first conversation. He comes from Trinidad. He has a completely different perspective. He's also really into that idea of equitability. Um, so that that's that. And he's also almost a layman's view. And then the thing that, that I discovered around this, this project was you can't think about power if you don't think about your brain. So at that point, we were like, oh, wow. So we really need to give people some insights. Hence, Professor Lisa Feldman Barrett. And for people that don't know, her work is legendary. So she talks to us about your brain is predictive right? So we're talking, but really what I'm doing is trying to piece together things that I know or I can guess might happen. So she'll do that. And then, so it's kind of like this narrative thread, really. We want to take people on a journey. So I've got some questions. I've got some questions. Mikey, I'm coming to you with this one because it's come up twice already. How would you define or describe power? Well, um, it's difficult to, for me to talk about how I would define power. I, I see power as an enabler. I see if someone who has power, that gives them the ability to enable things, whether it's to enable circumstances around them, enable themselves, enable you know people around them. That, that is what I see power as. Um, to talk about giving it a definition, that's a little bit more difficult. I'll leave that to the English experts. <laughs> but I see power as the ability to enable. All right. So 
I'm going to share something with you. Um, I've been in conversation with um, an amazing social neuroscientist called Professor Obi, who's probably the leading thinker on power. So this is how he describes it. Please let me get this right. He says that power is the ability to influence the state of someone else or a group of people. I agree with that. Um, and But I had, for me as a layman, it's also the key thing is influence the states whether they want to or not, right? So I, I think that's for me how I would define it. Um, but I'm really interested in the audience definition. And part of this is about being iterative research and hearing what others say. But what's your relationship, Ike, kind of with the idea of power? That that definition there, Suzanne, is pretty much what I, I had said. But I don't like to look at the negative. That's why I use the word enable. Because power obviously can defeat people and do bad things to people. I don't want to look at that aspect of it. I, that's a negative aspect of it. That definition that the professor, the learned person give is the truth, true definition. But I I hate negative. Okay. So, I mean, you know, there's emotional power, there's physical power, there's all these sorts of power. But as a sportsman, how much did your own physical power shape your thinking? Well, I, I, didn't, I don't think I had physical power. Um, I had some power over over, spe over people's emotions and over people's thought processes. I had no real physical power because of the fact that I was a fast bowler and I could bowl fast enough to hurt people. That obviously affected their minds. But as for physical power, I, I didn't really have any physical power. But if you can have power over someone else's mind, I think that's even more powerful than have the physical power. Okay. So I've, I've, well, I've listened to your recent Desert Island Discs, which actually made me cry. I really enjoyed it. And um, I've watched Fire in Babylon. And so I- You cry easy, Susan. You know what's really funny? Do you know what's really funny? I really don't. I'll tell you why it made me cry, because I've been doing all this research and I've been doing, and we're getting near, so we're in production phase. And it's actually quite emotional. It means a lot to me. And I just watched Fire in Babylon. I just listened back to the Sky Sports stuff. And then I got to Desert Island Discs. And so when I heard you talking about, uh, about the songs that mattered, about what friendship means, about um, how, it was almost like it was a summary for me of everything that you talked about. But friends to me mean everything. And I... Power for me doesn't matter if you haven't got friendship. And so when you got to that part, I was overwhelmed. So, yeah. So I suppose back to you, yeah, because, you know, audience don't really want to hear me talk. They want to hear you <laughs> and Mia. So let me ask you a question, right? When you think back on the kind of the West Indian cricket team days, you were at the heart of it, looking through the lens of power, like, what thoughts have you got? What reflections can you share on that? Susan, when, when, when I was playing for the West Indies team, and, you know, I would think most of the players on that team thought the same thing. We just thought of the fact that we were representing the people and we wanted to represent them as well as we possibly could. 
as I said, whatever power we had, had to do with the mind. You know, what we did had nothing to do with physical prowess as far as build and that sort of thing is concerned. Because it doesn't matter how big you are, you know, if you haven't got the skill and you haven't got the ability, it, do, it doesn't have any power. But our power was to be able to influence people's minds, to let them think before they even started that they were not going to win. And that made us, you know, even better than what we possibly were just on paper. Because once you move beyond writing down a team and writing down a name, names and then can show exactly what, how good you are, that then takes away everything and adds to your overall power. But as, as a team, we just went out there knowing that we had an outstanding chance of winning. And of course, that then lifted us and gave us the power to really accomplish that. Okay. So you know what, Mia, I've got a couple of questions for you. Like we've met, I've actually a couple of times, but once, and we've been in rooms together and you're, people might not know, but you're about to step into this powerful new role at the British Film Institute. How, how are you approaching it in terms of the power that you have and how you want to work and how you interconnect work and values? Yeah, that's a that's a big one. And it's something I think about a lot because where I'm just leaving is um, an organisation called Bird's Eye View. And that's about bringing people together, including myself, who had influence and power in film and using our power and influence to open doors for those who weren't getting the doors um, opened in the right way, which were basically female filmmakers. So we center films by women and spotlight them to audiences and champion them. We don't say this is because this is by a woman, you should like it because that's a reductive, not particularly interesting argument, um, but about, you know, it's about the gaze and perspective. So I've spent five years thinking about, you know, a lot about intersectionality and about all the lenses that we look through. And one of those is the lens of power and influence, which, you know, interestingly you know i've been kind of trying to give my power away and because of the zeitgeist i think what i've been doing because particularly since it's sort of post me too and the whole kind of weinstein revelations and this kind of big audit of power that it's maybe started in film and around kind of you know around gender particularly I am now in a position where I'm being invited into an establishment that I've wasn't wouldn't have been invited into before. And I actually even said it in my interview that organisations and institutions such as um, the one I'm about to work with were not built for people like me being, I would say, the, the um, particularly female and working class. They were not built for me to succeeding they were kept to keep me they were built to kind of keep me out not necessarily willfully but unconsciously and so I think a lot about that and think a lot about right they're inviting me in I have got a kind of blank slate now so what I cannot do is what is highly likely is to go in with the best intentions and then go and adopt all of the same kind of behaviours that that I've been decrying for most of my career. I can't do that. 
So I'm really fascinated in things like generous authority, which is a kind of principle of, you know, you have to, we've got, you know, anarchy if someone or a group is not in a way directing and managing and holding a space, right? So, you know, we can't be kind of Pollyanna-ish and go, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if like everyone's the same? That's unrealistic. And, but, you know, can we think about power in another way so that we give it away more gen- and be more generous with it? So, so, so what do you need? So when, in my example, I'm thinking about that's how I want to talk to filmmakers. How would you like to interact with us? What can we do for you? And it's not just about giving money, right? It's, it's much more complex than that. It's like the soft skills, you know, like how can we be more humble how can we be, you know, tender and and how, you know, all of the things that are sort of seen as sort of soft qualities that, you know, that kind of patriarchy and patriarchal structures and hierarchical structures have kind of nonsensed and kept out. How can we bring those in and centre them in a way that, you know, really creates great work? That's what I think about a lot and that makes people feel included and not shut out because with these kind of institutions, you either feel part of in within the beam or outside. And when you feel outside, it's really upsetting to listen to when people feel excluded and they don't ever really know why. And because it's all about kind of cultural value and exceptionalism and excellence. And even those words, like when in all the work that I've done in Bird's Eye View, we never say we send to the best films. We never say that because that's like a value judgment. Who knows? You know, like one of my favorite um, phrases is opinions are like arseholes. Everyone's got one. Excuse me for swearing. Um, But it's a great line. (laughs) And, you know, like what what one person thinks is a genius film, one other person may just not get. And that's really okay. And so, you know, there's some I'm bringing all of those kind of um, ideas and it, and real lived experience of thirty years in film and life into into what I do and and so I'm kind of excited about how to approach that and with a kind of beginner's mind like balancing not knowing with knowing. I can see you just nodding your head, uh, Mikey. So, like, what are you nodding your head to in what Mia's saying? Well, all Mia is talking about there, Susan, is enabling. You know, she has the power to help. She has the power to now enable others to, for them to achieve what they are hoping to achieve. And that power is, as she is talking about, they're being used the right way. You have all the power in the world. But because you have all the power in the world, being in a certain position in an industry or in a job, that power should be used to make everything around you better. And that's the word I keep on liking to use, enable. Okay. So, you know, one of the things that struck me was you, you, Mikey, talked about that you didn't plan your career as such. In essence, you were you and you, you went with the flow. And there's something about the power of being yourself and I so I never planned to kind of do what I'm doing now. Like it, 
what I did do was do quite a lot of work to figure out who I was and what I enjoyed doing. And then, and then I didn't even see the gap. I just asked the question and shut my eyes and, and kept going. What, what do we think about this idea of enabling and power and, but also su supporting people to be their best selves? Um, because it's, it is all very well and good, uh, us talking about power being centered in oneself, but the truth of the matter is that there is a limit to that. Like some people just say, I'm somewhere between reckless and brave. I will go for what I want, but I don't have mouths to feed. I don't have big overheads. How how do we enable people to flourish? And Mikey, you talked about power sort of being within yourself. What could you share from your experience about how you just step into that? How you just find that bravery? Susan, to, to be honest, I, I wouldn't tell you that I, I was very brave. Um, as a young man, as you intimated earlier on, I just went with the flow. I didn't have long-term plans as a young person. Maybe because I was lazy and I didn't want to be thinking long-term and didn't want to be setting targets and thinking, oh, this is what I want to do and that sort of a thing. I never ever thought when I was a young man and even as a teenager that I was going to be playing for the West Indies. I played cricket because I enjoyed cricket. I loved the game. It was just a gradual process that I went through the different stages and got there. As a matter of fact, after going on my first tour, I was happy to end my career there because it wasn't an ambition for me. And I went to university and I only went back to play cricket because of World Series cricket and, and Kerry Packer. So I might be a slightly different example of, you know, using whatever power you have and, and thinking to yourself, this is what I want to do. I have been very fortunate. I keep on telling people that I have been very lucky because a lot of what has happened to me was never, ever planned. It just happened and things just fell into place because I was there and it happened. So I might not be the right person to think about or to be talking to someone and giving them myself as an example. I have learned through life. And as I've gone through life, I've learned a lot of things that I can then talk to people about. But I can't tell them most of the times. I can't tell them when I was at this stage is what I was thinking and is what I was doing. Because of the process that I've been through, I can say, this is what you need to do. This is what you may require to get to this position. But I can't use myself as an example. If I did, I'll be lying. <laughs> but at the same time, because of my life experiences, I can I have learned a lot and I can then impart some of the some of that. So you know what? I wanna I wanna as you're talking, I wanna take the conversation left field a bit. Um you talked, Mikey, about um the fact that had you been born in the States, I think you said in parenthesis, as a as a black man, you may not have survived. And, you know, when you said that, I just thought about my experience as a black woman who was born in the UK. Um, 
as an adult, I went to Trinidad for the first time in my 20s, oddly with Roger and his sister. And, and I was stunned when I went into a bank and, and the tellers were black and the bank manager was black. And it really probably was the beginning of my journey of understanding what it feels like for me anyway, to, to grow up and be the product of a country that quite often I feel doesn't, doesn't like me, doesn't want me here. Like, what do you think would have been different for you had you not had kind of the upbringing? What, what might it have been like? Like, and what advice could you give to people like me, I suppose? where you didn't grow up in that environment where you had to consider the color of your skin in terms of power in the same way. I understand there was, there was colorism and, and other things, but. Well, when I made that statement, I was referring to, to the United States and its gun culture. If you look at how many black people and black young black men have been killed in the United States. If I was born there and grew up there, I certainly think I would be, numbered amongst those that wouldn't have survived because as a young man i was a little bit fiery i was a little bit expressive and i don't want to use the word but i didn't put up with shit and i know if i lived in america i would have been gone down for, for resisting or for just not being what they want me to be in england i would have survived in that I would not have been killed because the situation in the UK is a different situation. The gun culture is totally different. When I was going to the United States, in the, I mean, UK, in my early days, I never even saw a policeman with a gun. So it was a completely different situation. But perhaps I would have done or said something that would have got me into trouble anyway. Because again, of my, the nature, the nature, my nature and just the way I thought about myself and life as a young man. When I talk to people, though, Susan, who were born in the United Kingdom or went to the United Kingdom when they were very young and they are dark-skinned, black or colored, and growing up in United, in United Kingdom, what I say to them today, not years ago, because in the 80s, it was extremely difficult, and I saw that. But what I say to them is today is this. The atmosphere has changed and will continue to change. There's still a long way to go. There's a still a battle ahead. But things have changed, dram not dramatically. Things have changed over the years in the United Kingdom where someone of color can say to themselves, I have a chance. That's my, my mother's favorite expression or the expression that lived with me for many, many years. They can say that because I have seen at the change in the atmosphere. And I'll give you some examples, for instance. Me, 1976. I went to England for the first time in 1976, 22 years old. I left my hotel room, went out on the street, went into an establishment, sat down on a chair, and an older gentleman, perhaps because I was 22, he looked very old to me, possibly was in his high 40s, early 50s, came up to me and told me, why don't I go back to where I, am? I came from? This is my school, that sort of a thing. That would never happen today. Yes, it is 60 odd years, 40 odd years ago. But at the same time, what has been happening for centuries isn't going to change in a decade or two. It takes a long time for the change. But I can see the changes and I can see people of color in England being able 
to say to themselves, I can progress. There's still a fight there. There's still more difficulties and more things to overcome. But I, they can say to themselves, I have a chance of achieving. And they must never, ever think that because of their color, their race, their background, that they can't achieve. Because I, I've seen it and I think it is possible. So you know what? It's really interesting. And me, I'm going to come to you. I agree with everything you say, but I actually think, I think the UK for me has two spectrums. And, and maybe this is why this talk about power is so emotional for me. On the one hand, you're right, it has shifted. You know, the experience that I'm having to when my mum arrived in terms of the power and what I can do and how I can feel, you can't compare it. However, however, and I would say since Brexit especially, people have told me to go back where I come from recently. Um, I, I, I do find out that there are, there are funding that I should get that I don't get because of the color of my skin. And I think there is this tension, right? This, and this is this, this is the nuance of power, right? Of, of where power is. And sometimes that those indescribable systemic injustices that are there. And I think that's, like when you talk about when I think about health and well-being and power, that's this thing that I'm constantly shifting from. In some places, I have loads of power. I fully accept that. But in a lot of places, my white counterparts do not have to go through what I go through in order to get what I get. Um, and Mia, I, I can see you sh uh, nodding, not shaking your head. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I totally hear that. And I hear that from other people who are friends of colour and just because everyone who's listening is not seeing us, I'm a white person. And so, and I have to always think about that my whiteness is my privilege and it would be ridiculous to not. And, but, and, and equally I can understand because I have other things that aren't privileges like being from a working class, single parent family and, you know, every privilege that I earned, I kind of earned myself, but I earned it as a white person. I have to recognize that. And I, I agree with you because I do not see anywhere near as many of my contemporaries who are people of color, like, and what, that's not an accident, is it? And so I so I think about how to give my power away in particular whilst thinking about things like disability and, you know, ableism as a problem as well as race and, you know, and, and other inter and, and sexuality too. I'm straight, you know, and again, that's a that's something that we can't get away from. And so I, I hear you and I think that's why, you know, it feels to me like as Mikey said, I also always look to the positive and hope, I think, is an incredibly important um, thing to centre always. But and so things are much better. And what I'm kind of hopeful around is how much more people like me, white people with power, are having this conversation with each other as well as with people of colour. So instead of just having those conversations in rooms where they have to, we white people are having these conversations, well, certainly amongst my contemporaries, 
are ha- are being mu- are being forced to have these conversations, which is a good thing. So I and and we we white people have to we have to be we have to acknowledge that we have to know when we have to share and give a give our power away sometimes. And I've done that actively. And I'm not saying that to kind of, you know, be like applauded. I've done it because I've realised like I need to do this. I can't be kind of banging on about equality without looking up, thinking about equality in all spaces. Mikey, you're, you're nodding. What was going through your mind there as as Mia was talking? Yeah, well, again, Mia is, is talking about what, what we're all hoping for, you know, and I can understand your feelings about what you are experiencing, and you mentioned somebody telling you since Brexit, that is, why don't you go back where where you're from? And, you know, I've written about that in my book as well. Hope Powell was born in England and they're telling her to go back where she came from, and she couldn't quite understand that. But you'll always find ignorant people like that. You see, I do not think that you'll ever get rid of racism, just as I do not think you'll ever get rid of crime. But the less of it you have in your society, the better off you, you will be. And the more you can marginalize those other things, the criminals, the racists, the more you can marginalize them, obviously the less effect they'll have. And obviously the society will get better. And that is what I am looking at. That is what I am aiming for. That is what I am hoping for, that those sort of people will get, will get marginalized. And we have institutionalized racism because of the fact that that is where the society was built and that is what people are accustomed to they grow up in that society they grow up in that system and it is just automatic and that is why conversations need to be had so that people can come to the realization that what they look at as automatic no it is not automatic. It is something that they have got to look at and try to change because this automatic gear that they are there in is not right. And we see a lot of companies now getting out of that automatic gear and actually changing gears and thinking about changing gears. And that is the only way forward. It has to be something that people think about because the automatic thing doesn't work. People automatically give other people job because of, of what they're accustomed to. I know someone that is in a financial organization and there was this person appointed to look at the diversity in that financial organization. And a job came up and this person responsible for diversity automatically just appointed an older white man. And a lady went to him and said, listen, you are responsible for diversity. There's this colored lady that is very qualified for this job. You didn't even interview her. And it, this guy says, no, no, this, this guy is very good. You no, know, he's, he's fine. He'll do that job. And the lady insisted that he interviewed this other person. And he went and interviewed the person, and the person got the position. So it wasn't because he was racist and didn't want this person of color to get a job, but it was just automatic for him to think the way that he thought. And that is why we have to, as I said, move people out of this automatic gear because this is what they're accustomed to. This is what they're born into. This is the way they think. And until we have regular conversations about it, people will always be in that automatic gear. So you know what I was going to say? I'm I'm really struck, actually, and I think I'm going to 
take away from this conversation that it's really important to shine the light and have the positive on things and this idea of enabling. And, and one of the things that I've been learning about working with BAMF, so BAMF, BAMF are an arts and creativity organization in BAMF, which is in Calgary, which is in Canada. And they're on indigenous land and their their remit is to talk about arts and creativity, but centering indigenous wisdom. And one of the things that for me is mad interesting is they have a different definition of power. Power has to support the lives and beliefs of those around, both in the future and honoring the past. And when you do that, you have to make completely different decisions. And so I suppose that you asked really early on is like, how do you create the desire in people? How how do we get people to see that like I've had some mad successes in my life, but they've always been based on working collaboratively and really working with differing opinions and thoughts and views. Like, how do we how do we do that? Like, I guess that's that's the question, isn't it? Like how do we see that actually you become more powerful sometimes by giving your power away or by sharing it? Mia, you're nodding. Yeah, I've got a couple of things to say, actually. So I was just thinking very much I was gonna, what I was going to say in response to Micah's last um, thoughts were about how important lived experience is. And, you know, that's why you need a range of lived experience uh, in within all teams and organisations, A, because the more you share each other's lived experience, the more tolerance one has, and under, and then with tolerance comes understanding and empathy. And, you know, and there are loads of statistics to back this up that, you know, people become less racist, less ableist, you know, ho- less homophobic if they have a real live experience in their life you know, in some way, someone that they know and 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 connect to. It's very then hard to other someone when, you know, you have in your kind of friendship sphere or closer, your family, someone who is exactly representative of the thing that you're othering. You can't you can't do it. And so, you know, education and and kind of real life experience is so important. That's why diversity is not just like a checkbox exercise. It makes us better people. It makes our lives richer. It makes the stories we tell much more powerful. It makes projects better. It makes art greater. Uh, In my realm, film is so much more interesting so much more exciting and renewed because boy was it getting boring and stale it because of all the new voices that are diverse voices that are now finally being centered because of all the work that a lot of activists have done and so i think so that's what kind of came really strongly through to me um when you were just talking suzanne and And then the other thing I wanted to say is you can't talk about power without powerlessness. And one of the things I thought around powerlessness is it's like the first step. I'm not an addict, but I know recovering addicts. So I know about the 12 steps. And the first step is to acknowledge one's own powerlessness. And it's something we all need to do, like humility and humbleness. We all need it. We all need it. 
and it's a first step in your recovery and it's you have to accept that you can't manage that your addiction rules you and you accept to be honest about the help you need and you accept to be honest that you cannot do this alone that your management of it is not effective and that's like what a beautiful kind of tenet for like life work everything right that accepting that we can't do anything alone really and we're much better off together and just one more point that on this thing about diversity and having people that have lived experience different experiences one thing that i like to talk about when i talk about this thing is an example that somebody gave me when i was writing my book that there are two people standing facing each other and there is a piece of paper on the ground between them and something is written on that piece of paper there's a emblem on the piece of paper and one person is looking down and that person is seeing a six and the other person obviously from the other end is seeing a nine and they are arguing about what they are seeing and they cannot agree on what they are seeing but if they were just to walk around and exchange positions they would then understand exactly what that other person was arguing about and that is what we the conversation is about try and put yourself in another person's shoes to understand what they are going through and what they are seeing instead of just being blind and thinking all i'm seeing is what is important nothing else is important and that's the way forward I feel like there's some things that I want to draw out that I've learned from this and maybe maybe the audience want to hear too. Uh, firstly, this idea of, you know, power means a lot of different things, but, but ultimately what we're really talking about here, what we've been talking about, is enabling ourselves and enabling others. And to enable ourselves, we absolutely have to understand that we all have power in some shape or form. And that's different at different times. But I really like what you said, Mia, about also understanding that we are also powerless at times and we can really only flourish by, by reaching out for help. And so sometimes it's just as powerful to reach out for help and and i want to bring in that that moment that mikey laughed at me you know when i told him i cried on desert island discs when you talked about friends and what that means and i do want to remind us that really power friendship it, it maybe isn't rocket science we might not know exactly where it resides in our brain or our body but what we do know is that that people matter and connections matter and reminding ourselves that we have power matters and how we choose to use it. I want to throw the last words, any last thoughts over you to you two, um, the most amazing of guests. Amir, we'll start with you. Anything you want to add or you want to leave people to think on? Um, well, when I was doing my research, there's, I mean, one of the great sort of thinkers, philosophers on power in the 20, 20th century was Michel Foucault. And um, he said something just I love, which is, I think it's very inspiring, which is where there is power, 
there is resistance. And, you know, I'd say the sort of hope in that, that actually, you know, it's not just about kind of, you know, so often things are like someone's powerful, someone's not. Like the powerful have got to be defeated by the powerless. And actually what you're just saying is kind of like not, there's other ways. And it's, you know, that someone could resist and then there may be a better way. And, you know, that's about, and that's what really we've sort of spent our time talking about, which is like there are just other ways. And, you know, there's some great thinkers, you know, particularly kind of in the last 10 years that feel like they're kind of, you know, really saying like there are other ways, like you're talking about with Banff and like indigenous cultures are way wiser than the West. So, like they they knew, they've known this for centuries before, you know, that actually things don't have to be a power struggle. Like everyone can eat if you just eat enough. Like that's just such a fabulous principle. And so, you know, yeah, again, like Mikey, like I'm a glass half full, not a glass half empty person. And, you know, I think it's lovely to sort of leave with kind of hope that, you know, I'm so grateful that we're having conversations like this, Suzanne. Mikey. Last word to you. I can't add a lot, Susan. All I can say is I just hope these conversations continue. We need to have these conversations that so that people can understand different viewpoints and grasp the fact that things need to change. And we people that have any power use that power to enable. Don't use that power to beat down and to defeat. And it is something that you can use very well or very badly. Let us try always think about the very well, how to enable people. Thank you both for being amazing guests. Can We Talk About Power takes place online from Monday the 27th to Thursday the 30th of September. Find out more about the programme and book your tickets on the Barbican website. A quick shout out to the people that have supported us. Barbican, thank you so much. Uh, without you, this would not have been started. Banff, amazing partners. Arts Council England, thank you very much for the funding. And thank you too for welcome for the additional support. Thanks for listening to Nothing Concrete and this special episode exploring Can We Talk About Power? Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.